to start out by saying that some of you might be aware, some of you might not be aware, but you guys gave me a really, me and my family, a really generous gift for Christmas, and I want to say a huge thank you. Um, you guys don't even know the blessing that that is to our family, and I'm super thankful. So just wanted to make that public to you guys. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you. I love you guys too. Thank you. That being said, um, let's pray, and then we'll get right into it, okay? God, we thank you that you are our refuge. We thank you so much that you're the king who rules well and rightly and justly and generously and graciously. Lord, I pray that you would use the words of your scripture that I'm going to share this morning to make that truth even more loud and clear in our hearts, that you're a good generous, sacrificial God who loves us, and that you are the refuge that we can run to. So Lord, would you speak through me, and would you stir up our hearts to receive truth this morning, and uh, protect me from saying anything in error, um, but to share just true things that you want our people to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so I have a question for you guys. How many of you have ever had a performance review performance evaluation and annual review. I get one every, every year at home. <laughs> Has anybody ever gotten a bad review? Anybody ever gotten a bad review or has it been all good? Yeah? It can be pretty discouraging and pretty painful to get a review that is less than what you were hoping to hear, right? So this morning we're going to be in Isaiah 58, and I just want to start out by reading part of verse 2, and it says this, They seek me daily and delight to know my ways, and they ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. So if you just hear those verses, I don't know about you, but I would love to hear God say those words about me, that we seek righteous judgments from him, and we're diligent to seek after him daily. That's what Isaiah 58, verse 2 says. Um, but I'm going to clue you in that that's not what the rest of the chapter is about. It's actually a really negative review of the people. Um, and so this morning, I just want to bring up this idea of living the Christian life, not necessarily knowing how you're doing in the eyes of God. Because we don't get to sit down with God and have a performance review. We don't get that face-to-face -face evaluation. Um, so how do we know if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing? That's what Isaiah 58 is going to... It's going to be an indicator of a people that is doing well. And when I say doing well, I mean a people that is truly delighting in God, that's truly living as God would desire that they live. That's what Isaiah 58 is going to give us. Um, but the reality is the people that God was speaking to were not living rightly. We'll get there in a second. But how do we know how we're doing? The Bible gives us this idea of bearing fruit. And it's not found in the text of Isaiah 58, but I kind of want to hang out on this theme of bearing fruit. Because that is the indicator to us of how we're doing. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 7 that a healthy tree is going to bear good fruit, 
and a bad tree is going to bear bad fruit that is poisonous. And he says that by the fruit that is born in a person's life, you're going to be able to tell how they are in their spirit. You're going to be able to tell if they're rightly walking with God or if they're not by the way they live their life. And so that's kind of where we're going this morning. We're going to talk about bearing fruit and what type of fruit we need to be bearing. And so if you guys could open up your Bibles to Isaiah 58. I'm just going to start out by reading the first five verses. Remember those words I just read from verse 2. Here's the actual context. Isaiah chapter 58. God says to Isaiah, Cry aloud and don't hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet they seek me daily and they delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and didn't forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments and they delight to draw near to God. And they say, why have we fasted and you don't see it, God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Well, God says this, in the day of your fasting, you're seeking your own pleasure. You're oppressing your workers. Behold, you only fast to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. And fasting like yours on this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is the fast that I choose just a day for a person to humble himself, to bow down his head like a reed, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Not a very good performance review. Those are some harsh words. Um, I just want to start out giving you guys some quick context into this chapter because we're, we're not in a series on Isaiah, so I'm just going to fill you in the backstory. Some of you might know the kingdom of Israel after David and Solomon was split into a northern and southern kingdom. Um, and this is specifically talking to the southern kingdom of Judah, who was taken captive by Babylon. Um, roughly about 500 years before Jesus was born. And so their captivity in Babylon was for 70 years, and that was a way that God was judging them for their idolatry and their lifestyle of turning against their own God. They had forsaken the covenant that he made with them, and so now God took them out of their land. Their home cities and homes were destroyed, and they were taken captive in a foreign land for decades. And so this chapter in Isaiah is God's words to Isaiah to give to the people in advance of when they were going to come home. So this is just all prophetic, um, an outlook into what life was going to be like when the people of Judah came back to Jerusalem after they were in exile. Okay, And so there, there were two things that were happening um, that kind of set the stage for this. The first thing was corrupt leadership. If you guys read the context around Isaiah 58, like chapters 56 and 57, the leadership was, as, as the text says, they were like watchmen set out to protect the people who fell asleep. They're like shepherds who forsook caring for the sheep and were just seeking to feed themselves. That's the type of leadership that was happening. And even when they were in exile, you know, if you're taken captive by a foreign country, um, they're not out for your, for your best. They're, they're not looking out for your interests. They are going to be using you for their own advantage. So these people had gone through corrupt leadership, and I don't know about you guys, but I look everywhere in the world today, and I still see this type of leadership that is forsaking their role as leaders. They're forsaking their responsibility of shepherding the people that God has given to them for their, 
um, to care for them, and they're seeking their own interest. So this is, a, this is a situation that is very relevant for us. There's corrupt leadership happening that is oppressing people, and that's still happening. The second thing that was going on in the context here was people all around the people of God who completely, utterly did not care about God, and they were living in all sorts of idolatry and godlessness and violence and wickedness. The worst things you could think of were happening all around them. And so here's the people of God. They're supposed to be living for God. They're supposed to be doing what he has commanded, living in covenant with him. But all around them, they're just being bounced back and forth by oppression and these leaders who aren't protecting them and people around them who are trying to draw them into idolatry. They're trying to draw them away from God. And so they're just bouncing around like a little boat in, a wave, in, in the waves of a storm-tossed sea. And they're trying maybe somewhat to do what's right, but based on the text, it looks like they're starting to give way to the culture around them. And so here you have God's people essentially trying not to live like the culture around them, but beginning to look more and more like the culture around them. So I think this is super relevant for us today. Um, if you read the words in Isaiah 56 through 65, it basically describes our culture right now. And so I think these words would be super important for us to hear. So that's the stage. That sets the stage for what Isaiah is about to say in chapter 58. Um, and then he comes to this idea of religious conformity. And so that's where we're going to park for a little bit. Religious conformity. And when I say that, I mean doing the things that God has said we should do to look like we're doing what God wants us to do to look like we're a people of God. But on the inside, we don't have a heart that's aligned with what God really desires and wants. So, just this, this idea of holiness. You guys have heard the word holiness, right? And all throughout the Old Testament, God repeats again and again, I'm calling you to be holy, which means you're to be distinct from everyone else in the world. Because God is distinct, he's holy, he's far above everything else. He is holy, and he calls his people to be that way too, right? He doesn't call us to conform. He doesn't call us to be like those around us. He calls us to be holy and distinct. But the reality is that holiness is really uncomfortable. You guys ever felt that in real life, the, un the discomfort of being a holy person? When you go to work and people ask you why you do or you don't do certain things, you automatically feel that discomfort. You feel like you don't fit in. The reality is that holiness is uncomfortable. Yet, that's what God calls us to. We're strangers in this land. We're citizens of heaven if you're in Christ, right? He calls you to be different, which is going to be uncomfortable. But, have you guys noticed how easy it is to start to erode those boundaries? When somebody that you really love or respect, you look up to them, you really care about their opinion, starts to question why you're doing certain things, why you made certain choices for the Lord, they start to question you. Have you guys ever felt the compromise start to, to set in? Maybe you're supposed to say something very, very, like, you're supposed to share the gospel and give a defense for the hope that's in you, but you kind of back away from it, and you start to feel that compromise set in because you don't want to be so different from everybody else. You don't want to be an outcast. You want to fit in, right? You want to be comfortable. 
So the compromise sets in quickly. And that's what's happening here. You have these people of God bouncing around in this storm-tossed sea of culture and immorality, and they just kind of want to, they've been through so much during their exile, they're finally coming home, and they just want to be at home. They just want to be comfortable. So the compromise sets in. Now, look at the text. Look at verse 2. It says, They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. So right there, we see that hypocrisy and religious conformity are at the heart of the issue. The sin that he's telling Isaiah to declare is re religious conformity and hypocrisy, where the people's hearts are not aligned with God. They're just looking as if they are a nation that does righteousness. And then verse 3, he says, You're fasting. You're humbling yourselves. But in the midst of that, you're seeking your own pleasure. And we don't exactly know what was going on, but he says you're oppressing your workers. So obviously there's a disconnect here between what God has called them to and the way they're actually living. They want to appear as if they're doing what's right. They want to appear to be seeking after God, but they're oppressing their workers and they're living a lifestyle that is not right. And so I'm going to just make a statement that um, I didn't take a long time to like build up a theological argument about this. I'm just going to make a statement, and you guys can look at your Bibles to see if it's true or not. <laughs> um, but what I'm going to say is this idea of bearing fruit, right? We're called to bear fruit. If, if you are in Christ, he says, you're going to bear fruit. If you're not in Christ, you're going to bear bad fruit or no fruit at all, right? And Jesus says the, the tree that's not bearing fruit is going to be cut down. That's the truth. But religious performance is not good fruit of being in Christ. That's not the fruit that Jesus is after. And again, I challenge you to look through your Bible and, and to see if that's true. Um, but religious performance is not the good fruit of being in Christ. And here's what I mean by that. When I say religious performance, okay, so in the text, God mentions fasting. I think you guys mostly all know what fasting is. This was, um, in the Old Testament, there was only one day a year that they were commanded to fast. They were commanded to give up their food for the day and to do no work, and that was for the Day of Atonement, which is in Leviticus chapter 16. Amazing chapter. You should read it later. We're not going to get into it now, though. Um, but then, as you look at Zechariah, after the people are coming out of exile, there, there, be, there are these other days of fasting there's four days of fasting, and we don't really have much idea in, in Scripture as to how those came about, but this, the text just says there was one day in Leviticus, and now in Zechariah there's four days of fasting. Um, and throughout Scripture, the fast was used as a way to mourn our sin, to repent, um, to humble ourselves before the Lord, and to publicly declare that we are sinful and God is holy and so here we're humbling ourselves before him. So that's what a fast was in the Old Testament. And God mentions that they were doing this fast repeatedly. And they were crying out to God. They were praying. So when I say religious performance, I'm going to kind of translate that Old Testament Sabbath and fasting and sacrificing. I'm going to translate to our context, which would be joining together with the people of God to pray, to worship, to sing together, 
to hear the preaching of God's word, to read the Bible, to pray, and even to fast. Those are the things that I'm talking about when I say religious performance. Things that would make us look like we are a people that does what God wants us to do, right? And I'm saying that those things in and of themselves are not the fruit of a person that's rooted and grounded in Christ and is bearing fruit. Just let that settle for a second and think about that for a second. I think it's super important for us to pause right here and right now and to evaluate ourselves in light of this idea of religiosity, religious conformity, um, doing things that look religious, doing things that look like God wants us to do. Just pause for a few moments and evaluate your motives in your heart. Why do you come here? Why are you here right now? Here's what the scripture says about bearing fruit. It says that when you're in Christ, when you're walking in his spirit, your lifestyle is going to drastically change and the way that you actually live in real life, in real space, in real time, in interactions with other people are going to be things that God would do, right? Faith, hope, love, gentleness, self-control, patience. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. I might have missed some. But the fruit of a person who's rooted in Christ, who's delighting in God, are going to be actual things that you are doing in your life in relationship with others and in relationship with God. They are not this. This right here is a means of grace that God has given us to nourish us so that we bear fruit. Right? The preaching of God's word, hearing the truth of scripture, the fellowship of the body, encouraging one another, singing worship songs to God and praising him, praying out to him, fasting to humble ourselves. Those things are means that God uses to fill us up so that we then bear fruit in our everyday lives with other people and before God. So the fruit isn't this right here. He says in verse 5, is the fast that I choose essentially just a day for a person to be hungry? Is it just a day for you to sit at home and cover yourself in ashes and, and look poor and humble all day? Is that what God chooses? If this right here is all that we were saved to do and to be, then I think we should be pitied greatly. That's the reality. If we were saved just to come to church and sing a few songs and listen to this unqualified person share a thought on scripture, if that's all it is, then we should be pitied. And this is really sad. But the truth is that this right here is not the end. There's so many different verses throughout scripture that talk about us being redeemed so that we can be a people that does the works of God, so that we can be, I want to be careful how I say this, so that we can be God to others around us in a way. I'm not saying that we are God, um, if that makes sense. So that we can be his representatives to this world. And that depends on us doing things, right? It doesn't depend on just coming here to church. It depends on us doing things and saying things and thinking things and acting as God would act. Um, just to list off a few, Titus chapter 2 
says that we were purified, we were redeemed and purified to be a people that's zealous for good works. Ephesians says that we were God's masterpiece created in him to do good works. 1 John 3 says that if you're in Christ, you're to be laying down your life for the brothers. You're to be loving other people, which looks like physical activity. The fruit that we're to bear is our lifestyle, right? The things that we do, the way we respond when situations don't go our way, the things we say to somebody when they're mad at us and they treat us poorly, um, the things we do when we're alone before God and we think no one knows what we're doing. The reality is that right now, in our time zone at least, and earlier today and later today, there's going to be countless people gathering in churches just like this, and they're going to sit through a message, they're going to hear the words that are spoken, and very many of those people are going to walk out the doors, and they're going to go home, and they're going to put on a show, and they're going to forget everything they just heard. Then they're going to get into an argument with their spouse. Then they're probably going to leave the house, and they might go get drunk, and they might completely act a fool. And then who knows what could happen after that. And then they're going to come home, they're going to go to bed, they're going to go to work tomorrow, they're going to get through the week, and then they're going to come back to church next Sunday, and they're going to do the same thing. I'm pleading with you guys to understand that this right here is your means to be filled and nourished to then bear fruit the rest of your week, every second of every day. You're to be living like a representative of God. You're to be living like he would be living if he was here right now in front of us. And so that religious conformity was the problem that God was condemning. And now we turn to verse 6. What is, the, what is the fruit that we're supposed to bear? What does it look like? What are we supposed to be doing? What is a, a true fast that God is honored by? Look at verses 6 through 10. God says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is not my fast to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Your healing will spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call. The Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the, de the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. He'll make your bones strong. You'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. There's three things I want to point out very briefly about the fruit that God desires you to bear. The first one is that it's sacrificial. And if you guys were here last week, this is just piggybacking off of what Dan said. The fruit that we're to bear is to be people who image God to everybody around us in a sacrificial way. 
it has to cost you something. You know, our God, before he created us, knew that he was going to have to sacrifice in order to have us be here, right? He knew that we were going to reject him. He knew that we were going to rebel. He knew that we were going to need everything from him, yet he still created us, knowing that he was going to have to give and give and give and give and not get anything in return. That's sacrifice, and that's our God. That is generosity and sacrificial giving at perfection. And beyond that, Jesus himself lived a life of sacrifice. He literally sacrificed his life for us to be redeemed, to be fixed, right? To be back into that place where we can represent God rightly. Before you have a child, most times, you think about the fact that there's going to be sacrifice involved. Yet often that, that doesn't stop you from having a family, right? You welcome that sacrifice because you want to love that child. The fruit that we're to bear must be sacrificial and it must cost you something. Look, just look at verse 7. It says, Is not the fast I choose to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, and when you see the naked to cover him, implicitly with your clothing. Verse 10 says you have to pour yourself out. That is not something to be taken lightly. He says to pour yourself out for the hungry. This idea of fasting, the people in the text understood that they were going to be hungry for that day. They understood the the simplicity of giving up food. They got that part. They were doing it. But what they didn't understand is that God is calling us to withhold from ourselves to give to other people, right? He's not calling us to withhold from ourselves to then let that sit there in front of us so then the next day we can gorge ourselves. The fast that God calls us to is to withhold comforts and desires and even needs from ourselves to give to other people. And I wish we had a lot more time to spend on this, but... Um, there's just a line from a song some of you guys might know this the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair Um, life is not fair but the reality is there are countless people who are in need and God's saying that he wants you to withhold from yourself to give to them I'm going to move on the second thing In this text, the fast that God chooses, the fruit that we should be bearing as representatives of Christ in the world, has to do with physical needs. God is concerned with the here and now, and he's concerned with physical needs. And you can't ignore ignore that or deny that in this text. He says, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your home to cover the naked. God is concerned with justice when it comes to physical needs and the oppression that takes place in this world that puts people at a disadvantage, that marginalizes people when it comes to those physical things. God is concerned about that. Read Matthew chapter 6. God is concerned about the life of a sparrow. 
He's concerned about the life of a flower. How much more so the people that he created in his image. But as people who have rebelled against him, we've rejected his authority. When the world is in our hands in that state, we oppress people time and time again. We put other people at a disadvantage to put ourselves at an advantage. And every time we do that, somebody suffers and is in need of physical things, whether it's food, housing, education even. Um, you could expand this into so many categories. Um, you have ethnic and gender inequality. You have um, developments across the city that are putting people at disadvantage. I mean, you could just keep going. The list goes on. Um, in other countries, we have even crazier things that um, are taking place where people are oppressing God's people to put themselves at an advantage when it comes to physical things. God is concerned about this, and you know what he does? You know how God is a refuge to the poor? He sends out his people into the world to give to those people. He uses you guys to provide what is lacking. And in some ways, this goes back to the text from last week, the, the idea of filling up the sufferings that were lacking in, in Christ's suffering, right? We have that opportunity to go into the world, to sacrifice, to withhold from ourselves, to put ourselves in a desperate place so that others might receive what God has for them when it comes to physical needs. I love Isaiah chapter 55 the first couple verses, um, if you want to flip the page. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You know, oftentimes we make this issue of physical needs like this and social justice, we make it into a political party thing. And I'm not going to... I'm not going to go deep into this, but this is not a Democrat or a Republican issue. This is a kingdom of Jesus issue. If you are in Christ, this is an issue that you need to be tackling. In the kingdom of Christ, people will eat without money and without price. Just think about how crazy it is that there's people in the world who don't have drinkable water, yet other places... There's people charging five, six, seven, eight dollars for a bottle of water, and we just pay it and we drink it. Meanwhile, there's children on the other side of the world, children in our own city, who go for hours or days without eating. And in other places, there's people gorging themselves and throwing away leftovers. Guys, who created the world? God did. And who made food and water. God did. Who owns it? God does. Yet we think that we can declare ownership over these things that God has given for all people. And we think that we can make a profit off of what God has given to us for our well-being, right? God is concerned about this stuff. It's not something to just ignore. You cannot be rightly and fully align with the heart of God and ignore issues of injustice when it comes to physical needs. We, we just cannot ignore it. And so I want to challenge you to begin turning your heart, if you're not already engaged in, in issues like this, um, 
spend some time with the Lord and ask how he would have you do it. I also don't want to go too far and make you guys feel judged for not, I don't want to do that. Um, this, is, this is like a plea and an urge, not a, um, I'm not trying to condemn anybody. Because the reality is when you look at these broad, these broad strokes of feeding the hungry and taking the homeless into your home, we cannot do it all alone. We're like that guy who's walking down the beach and there's all the starfish on the sand and he wants to save them all, right? But he cannot throw every starfish back into the sea. He can only do one at a time, right? Um, so I want to like give you that hope that this does not all fall on your shoulders, but it is something you need to be concerned with. And it is something that God causes people to be concerned with and to pursue justice in these areas. The sacrificial fruit that we need to be bearing, especially when it comes to physical needs, God is providing for his people through his people. And I'm just a testament to that through and through. God has provided for me so many times through other people being concerned with my physical needs and giving to me. Ephesians chapter 5 says, um, let me turn there real quick. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 9. He says, don't become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. And try to dis discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of those things that they do in secret. But when anything's exposed by the light, it becomes visible. I want to just say that the oppression of other people, withholding things that, that they need, that God has given freely for them, that is darkness and that's evil. And God is calling us to expose those works of darkness and to do justice where there is none. And the last thing, I'm going to close with this, is that the fruit that... God calls us to bear the fast that he chooses for us to partake in, sacrificial giving when it comes to physical needs, but also when it comes to spiritual needs. And I'm going to verse 6 for this. Look at Isaiah 58, verse 6. He says, Isn't this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and then to break every yoke. See, all this oppression, all this injustice that we see in the world on a physical level stems from a spiritual dilemma. It all stems from people who have turned their hearts against God, they've usurped his rightful throne, and they've put their own desires on the throne of their heart, and they pursue their own desires at the expense of everybody else, right? Idolatry and godlessness are the root of all this oppression. That's a spiritual issue. And so if God's calling us to loose the bonds of wickedness, it's more than just physical. 
we can't be a people that just lives out a social gospel. And what I mean by that is just this idea that if we give to the poor, if we care for the needy, if we give to the hungry, if we open up our homes, that's enough. The fact is, that's a lot to do. That's a huge calling, and it's not enough. God calls us to more than that. He calls us to go after the spiritual issue under the surface. And not only are we supposed to loose the bonds of wickedness, I, th- I think you could apply this idea of loosing the bonds to providing some ease for the physical needs, right? That's loosening the bonds. You're starting to unwrap the coils that have kept people oppressed. But then he says to you take the yoke off and then you break the yoke. The yoke was the, the harness that they used for animals on a farm to produce crops. Um, that was the tool they used to control the animal. And metaphorically, the yoke is this idea of oppressing other people. You're controlling somebody to do something for you. It symbolizes serving somebody else. And he's saying you need to take that yoke off and you need to break it. These areas of injustice and oppression, they need to go away completely. We don't just need to ease the hunger or the discomfort. We need to get rid of that. And guys, that's a spiritual thing. That's why this, I left the missions emphasis slide up there because this is where it ties into everything we've been talking about when it comes to missions. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. He is making right these injustices by the work that Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection, but then it's carried out by the work of his people. That's where we come into play. That's where missions comes into play. You have to step out of this after you've been filled, and then you step out there and you begin to bear fruit as you're doing the works that Jesus would do. Not just physical, but spiritual. God is concerned with the whole person. And even as I'm speaking this, I'm thinking of the guy Vladimir that we talked with the other week. He came here asking for milk for his baby. God is concerned with much more than milk. God is concerned with the heart of that man. He's concerned with the heart of every person who is suffering from injustice. He's concerned with their spiritual state, and he wants them to be reconciled to himself through Christ. And guys, the way that we do that is we minister by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the gospel to that person as we release and and destroy the bonds of wickedness that are evident in their physical need. It's not just one or the other. It's not just giving a gospel tract to a homeless person on the street and walking away. It's not just giving that person a sandwich and walking away. The works that Jesus calls us to do are all-encompassing. It's going to be sacrificial. But he calls you to be concerned with the whole person. You're declaring the truth of the gospel. You're declaring that Jesus is the king. And I was going to get to this in a minute, but none of this can be done without Jesus, right? Jesus is the one. If you fast forward to Isaiah 60 and 61 and the rest of Isaiah, Jesus is the one who fulfilled that fast perfectly. Jesus is the one who came and he was able to obey. He was able to perfectly delight in God the Father and to do all these things that we fail time and time again. He was able to do justice like nobody else could. And then he was able to conquer death raised from the grave, and ascend back to heaven where he sent his spirit to us to continue that work. 
None of this is possible without Jesus, the suffering servant, who fulfilled this perfectly. Nothing can be reconciled or made right without Jesus. And so as we seek to be a people that's bearing fruit, we have to be concerned with the whole person, the physical needs and the spiritual needs. We need to loosen the bonds of wickedness and break that yoke. And I would argue that that is through gospel proclamation and the ministry of the power of the Holy Spirit to people around us as we care for their physical needs. And finally, in closing, guys, I would love to just talk about this for another hour. But I won't. I'll spare you. Just in closing, look at the blessings that God promises for those who are, who are delighting in him in this way. Look at verse 8. He says, if you're, if you're truly delighting in me, then these things are gonna these things are gonna happen. If you're delighting in God, these things are gonna be a concern to you. And he says, then your light is gonna break forth. Then your healing is gonna spring up. The breakthrough that you're looking for as you walk in injustice, claiming to be a people that's right with God, the breakthrough that you're longing for is gonna come when you're delighted in Christ and you're doing the works of Christ. Your healing's gonna come. Your righteousness is going to go before you. And I love this phrase, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. God himself is going to have your back. As you step into these areas of sacrifice and discomfort, when you pour yourself out, wherever you step into, the glory of God himself has your back. So there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to, to be reserved about because God is at your back, right? And then he says, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and you satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then your light's going to rise in the darkness and your gloom is going to be as the noonday. God's going to guide you. He's going to satisfy your desire. He's going to make your bones strong. And here's, an, here's a little reference to John chapter 8. He's going to make you like a watered garden and a spring of water whose waters do not fail. When you're being filled with Christ by his Spirit, and you're pouring that out to other people, that's a promise for you guys that he's going to keep filling you. As you pour yourself out for others, he's going to keep filling you. You're going to be like a spring that never runs dry. And that's a promise that we can hold on to. So just my last thought. Um, this is big, heavy stuff. And um, again, we, we cannot do all this work today by ourselves. But this is the direction for us to go. Um, we've been together, many of us, for four, five, six years now in this church. And um, we just took our first missions trip this past year. And I think God would say, it's time for us to go all in. I think God would say, it's time for us to be concerned about all these things. And I know, again, I want to encourage you guys, a lot of people in this room I mean, we have adoption and foster care and people working with the homeless and the needy and all sorts of, like, you guys are doing this. I'm not saying we're not, but I want to say let's do more. Let's be like Jesus, really. Our, let's shine that light like the noonday in the darkness. Um, let's not be a people who just come here and then leave to come back because this is not it. The fruit that you guys need to bear is everywhere else. 
all other times. This is your time for filling. This is our time to fill each other, to then go and to be Jesus to those around us. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would just take, uh, take my humble thoughts on your scripture and would you make them resonate in people's hearts today? Lord, would you, would you encourage those who have been doing this kind of thing? Lord, we, we want to bless them, um, all those who have been pouring themselves out in areas of physical service to the needy, Lord. We bless them, and we thank you for them, and we want to ask for greater influence in their lives on the people they serve. Lord, would you do more through them? And Lord, for those who maybe not haven't thought about this, Lord, would you, not in any, in any sense of condemnation, but Lord, would you press this heavily on their hearts as something that you would have them to do? But then, Lord, would you give us the direction? Because it is overwhelming to look at a world of oppression and darkness and to know where to begin. Lord, we can't do it on our own. You don't expect us to do it on our own. So give us the clarity and the direction to be able to do this work together. Lord, help us to understand the importance of this time of being filled by your grace and by your spirit to then leave here to be the salt and the light to those around us. Lord, it's not enough just to, to get by until next Sunday. It's not enough to, to be turned in on our, on our own dilemmas all the time. Lord, would you, would you use the difficulties in our lives to strengthen us, to fill us, and to show us the way that you would have us to serve people, to break the bonds of wickedness, Lord, to loose people from areas of oppression and physical needs where you say, I have all things and I'm ready to give them, but I want my people to be the channel. Lord, help us to be that channel. In Jesus' name. Receive our hurts, Bob. Take, take that personal inventory. Well, what, what's God's review of your heart in this season of life? Is it, uh, is it the rich man who's filled his barn full and is looking to take it easy? That rich man could have been very well religious going to church on a regular basis, reading his Bible on a regular basis. And yet, ultimately, his heart was wrapped up in his big barn and his comfortable life. It's the difference between religiosity and true faith. True faith calls you to a cost. The whole point something of his love, something of his kindness, a love and kindness that's not just about spiritual things, but also then recognizes the physical needs. God really cares. Jesus really cares. And he's truly worthy of our sacrifice for the good of his
see Jesus as that worthy one who's like, man, I'll, I'll give up the barn, I'll give up the comfort, I'll give up the home. But he calls me to sacrifice, oh, I'm glad we sacrifice. That's no longer religiosity. That's adoration. That's beauty, that's worship. That's what Jesus calls us to. This message will feel like a burden don't see the glory and wonder. He's wonderful. Have you seen him? Is your heart captivated by him? Is your focus heavenward? Or is it earthly? Where's your heart at? God, we pray pray that we would know something of your incredible majesty and love. Thank you. You don't call us to sacrifice until we first have sinned, stood in wonder of the sacrifice that you've made on our behalf. You don't call us to love and mercy on others until we know the love and mercy from you. And we want our hearts to throb and your heart throbs. We want our hands to work and your hands to work. We want our minds to saturated with truth because you are the one who is true. So God, would you work in us to work through us for your glory? Would we not get so sidetracked in this <coughs> world and in this time and in this earth to set up our own little personal kingdoms on earth, but may we live ultimately for your kingdom because you are a worthy God. Captivate our hearts, captivate our minds, and set our hands and feet to work for your stand and sing together. Before the throne.